North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Victor and Sue, it is a new time in America. There's a new administration, Biden administration. It's day two of the Biden administration. But first, we have to talk about what's going on in the impossible state. North Korea just held the Eighth Party Congress and a parade. What are some of your key takeaways? Sue, let's go to you first. Well, Obviously, Kim spent a lot of time outlining wide-ranging nuclear modernization plans, right? Talked a lot about putting major investments on all kinds of things, right? Missiles compatible with multiple re-entry vehicles, solid fuel ICBMs, new unmanned aerial vehicles, military reconnaissance satellites, nuclear power submarines, Ramping up tactical nuclear weapons, very concerning because that could be a signal that they, they could be poised to return to nuclear testing at some point. They talked about submarine fleet, right, modernizing that. And during the parade that followed the Congress, party Congress, they rolled out this new SLBM and they called it the world's most powerful weapon. So I, I think I've talked about this before, but I am very concerned that something like submarine launch ballistic missile test or a satellite launch it might be a next step for North Korea in terms of a provocation because it's still provocative, but they have space to ramp up the pressure, right? To something like multiple warhead capable ICBM later down the road, or even tactical nuclear weapon later down the road. So the bottom line for me is that as we were concerned about, and we talked about this in the past, there are good reasons for North Korea to revert back to a testing campaign. There are some reasons why they might not, or they might just wait a little bit longer. But I do think, and I'm very concerned after the party congress and this parade, that they will go back to this kind of gradual, systematic intensification of pressure uh, that they, they we so many times talked about. This is what they do. They called U.S. their main enemy. As I said, they showcased their SLBM during the parade. They, there's even satellite that's picking up some work that's being done, a naval base at the West Coast. So... I am concerned. Uh, this is, I think, for the Biden administration, they need to prioritize North Korea. I know they have a lot of issues that they are concerned about, but they need to prioritize North Korea because this is coming. I think provocation is forthcoming. Victor, what's your take on the you know latest out of North Korea? I agree with everything that Sue said. I mean, you know, what strikes me about this all is that we always talk about North Korea on this podcast as the impossible state, but it's also considered to be one of the most opaque states in terms of, you know, we don't know a lot about what's going on inside the country. But if you look at what they did in the Workers' Party Congress, the speech that Sue is referring to, and then what they did in the parade, they're about as transparent as they can be, right? They're about as transparent as they can be in terms of their intentions. What you learn from that is they're saying, one, we're not denuclearizing, right? So just give up on that dream. Two, not only are we not denuclearizing, we are going to modernize our nuclear and missile force to make it state of the art, right? To have all of the things that are associated with a modern nuclear weapons force, including hypersonic missiles, solid fuel, 
right? Nuclear submarines, as Sue said, not just one, but a fleet of nuclear submarines, you know, something that we at CSIS Critcher have been following very closely. You know, they're saying very clearly this is what they want to do. And third, what I think that means is that, you know, we should be bracing ourselves for some sort of action by them because they are telegraphing very clearly that this is the path that they're now on. They've already said that they're no longer bound by the self-imposed moratorium that they agreed to during the Trump administration. They said they no longer feel bound by that. And then history shows, you know, what was it? It was three weeks after Trump's inauguration, they did something. Five weeks after Obama's inauguration, they did something. So, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me. And then fourth, as Sue said, you know, this administration has a lot on its plate coming in. I mean, President Biden laid out the six crises in his remarks yesterday, and North Korea is not one of them. But North Korea will find a way to make itself one of them. And one of the most direct ways they can do that is by carrying out a test. I mean, when they see Biden, you know, I think they think strategic patience. When they see Biden, they think that's Obama, that's strategic patience. And they did not like strategic patience. So they will do something to what do you call it? Flip the card table or shake up the deck, whatever the right metaphor is to try to get people's attention. So to both of you, I want to ask, clearly North Korea's economic situation is dire. Is that going to lead Kim to liberalize or open up to the world? And how does that affect North Korea's foreign policy? That's just another interesting point coming out of this party congress it was very disappointing because there's the strategy for their economic development seemed very, very inward, right? And they focused on the role of the state, how that needs to be strengthened. And I don't know, Victor, if you, you've seen anything, but I, I've seen any signs that any kind of new reforms are really being planned. And that was really what, what was really very concerning to me. Uh, their focus on this kind of state-led development, control over markets, private markets, and not any kind of mentions about re true reforms or any kind of indication that it's going to be market-oriented reform. So that is very concerning because already going into this party Congress, North Korea's economic situation is more dire. I mean, it has not been this dire since mid-1990s during the famine years. So we've been talking about how the, they were living under the impact of sanctions preventive COVID measures that they have taken, how that has really shut the border, China-North Korea border, where the trade between North Korea and China is down. And, and Sue, not Sue, not to interrupt, but we, we still don't really know what's going on with them with COVID, do we? No, we don't. I mean, they still insist that they don't have any positive case of COVID, which is absolutely unbelievable, right? But when you think about also how the kind of draconian measures that they've taken, uh, how paranoid they are about COVID, and the fact that they've been hacking these vaccine companies, so they, they are very interested in vaccines. So you know that something is going on. And this is in addition to sanctions, natural disasters, typhoons, and so on. So their economic situation was very dire going into this party Congress. But from this party Congress, I have not seen any sign that they're now looking at some kind of real reform that's forthcoming. The thing about this that to me is scary, potentially scary, is that you know, they have sealed the border because of COVID. I read something somewhere the other day that said year-on-year -year trade with China is down over 80% because they've completely sealed the border with China because they're so afraid of getting, letting COVID into the country. One, how long can they sustain that, right? It's already, as Sue said, I mean, they're, they're talking about negative growth rates that we haven't seen since the mid-1990s. This is their only trading partner, right? 
This is their only, yeah, 90% of their trade is with this one country. And it's not that China is implementing sanctions. It's the North Koreans are sealing the border. I mean, they're, they're not allowing stuff in. So how long can they do that? And then second and related to that, as Sue said, the Workers' Party Congress did not really, it talked about difficult economic situation, but it did not really say anything or follow up about instituting reforms. What it did make an ominous reference to was the markets and the government taking control of the markets. And I wrote about this in the Washington Post piece last week. If the North Korean government decides to start trying to take hard currency out of the markets, out of the pockets of North Koreans, whether it's dollars or euros or renminbi, if they try to do that as sort of an economic fix, that's going to create a lot of anger among the North Korean public. You know, the two other times they did some sort of currency reform or re-denomination were the two times that we heard anecdotal evidence of sort of real social resistance in North Korea. And at least based on what we see, it looks like that's one of the ways they're going to deal with this, which is to try again to squeeze hard currency out of the markets, take it out of the hands of North Koreans who've worked so hard, you know, outside the government. Like 70% of North Korean families today have some involvement with the market, right? So you're talking about most of the population. That would be a very internally destabilizing situation, I think. It could be very, very destabilizing. In The Impossible State, the not the podcast, but the book, in The Impossible State, the book, one of the scenarios that I wrote about in the last chapter was if North Korea instituted another type of currency redenomination of reform as another signpost of real trouble domestically, because people get really angry at that. They really don't like that. And some of the survey work that we've done on this, you know, on the border with China, when you ask North Korean family, like what pisses them off the most, it, it's always this anti-market activities is what pisses off them the most about the government. What is the reaction coming out of South Korea about this latest party Congress? What are you, what are you guys hearing? What's going on in South Korea is right now they have a reshuffling of the cabinet, right? Now, you know, the former National Security Advisor, who was sort of behind the scenes architect of President Trump and Kim Jong-un's uh, Singapore summit, Chang Yong is now going to be the new foreign minister. And I just feel like the Koreans, no matter what is coming out of North Korea, their mindset is trying to have a breakthrough with North Korea, right? The Moon administration has about a year left. And they are pretty desperate. I mean, they probably don't want to use that word. They'll probably get upset with me to use that word. But I, I do think their mindset is they want to make a breakthrough. And they are in, in that mindset. And I think even just changing the foreign minister and having this recent cabinet shuffle, it has also to do with, the, you know, with that in mind. So I don't know what they're saying specifically about what came out of party Congress. But I think what they're saying is, hey, there's still room for engagement. We still need to make a breakthrough with North Korea. North Korea has not given up on denuclearization. And the path that we need to pursue is engagement, engagement, engagement. So soldier on. There, nothing's changed. Just soldier on. Not only nothing has changed, I think they are accelerating it. And they feel a little bit more like they don't have enough time. They only have a year left. So they are pretty eager They've always been eager, but uh, I think they're very eager to have some sort of breakthrough, diplomatic breakthrough with North Korea. Yeah, I mean, I think they're dogmatic like economists, not to upset any economists who might be listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, their model works, right? It works no matter what you say, the model works. And it's, you know, it's full steam ahead. Like Sue said, their cabinet reshuffle just reinforces the engagement-oriented 
team that they put together, right? The unification minister, the national security advisor, now and now the former national security advisor who helped to set up all of the summits in 2018 and 2019 now is coming in as the foreign minister. You know, we've referred to it in the past. That's the dream team for engagement with North Korea. And so I think they're going to continue down that path. And then I think the other thing they're going to do is, and what I'm afraid they're going to do is, they're going to come into the Biden administration from the first meeting and say, you've got to do a summit with North Korea. Like, you've got to keep this thing going. And, you know, given all that the Biden administration has on their plate, that's not the message that South Korea wants to send at the beginning. It's like Kim Dae-jung. Remember when Kim Dae-jung met with George Bush the first time? You know, he came in and he spent the entire meeting telling him about how he, he should do a summit with Kim Jong-il because Kim Dae-jung had just done a summit the first, you know, summit with the North Korean leader. And, you know, as Mike Green has talked about, because he was in government at the time, Bush was not against some sort of engagement with North Korea. But that hard sell at the very beginning probably set back the process six months to a year. I don't think it serves South Korean interest to come in headstrong like that and say, oh, you've got to continue what the previous guy, what Trump did, especially because there are no results to show for it. And certainly the people who are and let's talk about this now, but the people who are you know, in charge of policy in the Biden administration might view what the Trump administration did was at best ill-conceived. I think that's right. I mean, this is not a team that they're assembling that has not been around the block with North Korea before, right? They've, yeah. they've not only been around the block with North Korea in the Obama administration, some of them have been around the block with North Korea going back to even the Clinton administration. So this is not a new problem for them. I think that's a good thing because having experienced people who've done this before, they're not going to fall for the same sort of North Korean trap doors and diplomacy and all this sort of thing. They won't completely reject the idea of symmetry at some point, but I think their default is going to be much more cautious and much more substance-based rather than made-for-TV theatrics that really don't accomplish anything. You know, I think from what we see of the team so far, I mean, all of these people are great. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, you know, you know, all of us who have worked on this issue have had conversations with him about it. We took him to Korea for one of our annual conferences a few years ago when he was not in government. And so he's dived, dove deeply on this issue many times before. I know Sue has also had extended conversations with him about it. I mean, you know, Kurt Campbell has experience with this going back to the Clinton administration, the Bill Clinton administration when he was in DOD. So he certainly understands the issue. And then there are you know, people like Laura Rosenberger, who will be the senior director for China, and Edgar Kagan, the senior director for East Asia and Oceania. I mean, when we were doing six-party talks, Edgar was at the embassy in Beijing and was involved in those talks every day, right, as a key interlocutor for us with the Chinese. And Laura Rosenberger was also on that delegation for the six-party talks for the 2005 and 2007 agreements. So these people have a lot of experience on this issue, and that's comforting. You know, I think that's really comforting because they're not going to overreact or underreact. What we saw during Trump was overreaction by the president, and then later on, underreaction by the president as North Korea was doing 30 missile tests after the Hanoi summit, right? So I think experience is very important on this issue, and the team that looks like it's coming together has that experience. Yeah, Tony Blinken, of course, over at State. And Bill Burns at the CIA, who I'm thrilled 
thrilled with that appointment because he just oozes decency, right? Bill Burns is such a great person. Avril Haines as a DNI, she was just confirmed. She's great. So I 100% agree with what Victor said. Tony Blinken did say during the Senate confirmation hearing just a few days ago that he plans a full review, right, of Washington's approach to North Korea, which is not, that's what you say. Of course, there's going to be a full review, which makes sense. He said he will look at ways to increase pressure, but also ways to see if they can provide humanitarian help to North Korea, which is a sensible approach. You know, so the question in my mind is, will the Biden administration be interested in and pursue an interim freeze agreement with North Korea? I think that's one of the things that's probably going to be, you know, on the table, obviously, just right out of the bat when they have their policy review, whether it's in U.S. interests to pursue negotiations that will result in an interim freeze deal, which seeks to limit North Korea's nuclear weapons capabilities without eliminating them. But that is the more practical option. And I, I know Victor wrote an op-ed, Foreign Affairs and Washington Post piece about that. But that would be, the I think, the first top priority on the agenda for discussion. Yeah, Victor's piece in the Washington Post on January 15th lays a lot of this out. Victor, what do you think the Biden administration's approach towards North Korea should be? So a couple of things. The first is that our North Korea policy starts with our alliance policy. And so the first thing is we have to get our alliance back in order. That's the most important thing. It's been through a rough period. It's been focused on very important, but very sort of small, nettlesome issues at the expense of the broader strategic picture. So we've got to get that back in order and not sort of making claims like we're going to cancel exercises without telling our ally that we're going to do that. So that's the first thing. The second is, you know, I I agree that they need to do a policy review, right? And to say you need to do a policy review is also a way of not being forced to make policy through press statements or through congressional testimony, right? Which is the smart thing to do. Or tweets. Or tweets, yeah. Hopefully no more of that. (laughs) But I think, practically speaking, the freeze is important. I mean, this is a runaway, completely unfettered program right now. So we've got to stop it somehow. And if the price is a little bit of fuel assistance, a little bit of energy assistance, a little bit of food, like that's really a small price to pay to stop them from building 80 nuclear weapons or 100 nuclear weapons or, or something along those lines. Those parts are easy. I think the difficult question is what do you do after the freeze? And there I think the debate comes down to whether you try to go down the same path and try to get a verifiable declaration or whether you shift to trying to focus on threat reduction, whether that's codifying a test ban or codifying no proliferation to third parties, these sorts of things. And that becomes politically very sensitive issue. So I think they're going to have to wrestle with that. The last thing I'll say is that We can't underestimate the domestic politics of this issue because all of those Republicans that were saying, let's trust Kim Jong-un when Donald Trump was doing summit diplomacy with them, they will all become super hardliners on North Korea, starting from yesterday. So as soon as the administration says something about freeze or engagement, they're going to get charged with selling out accepting North Korea as a nuclear weapon state, right? These sorts of things that, you know, so they're going to have to deal with that. But I think from the expert practical perspective, I think many folks that I've talked to, listened to, read in the Washington policy community think, you know, freeze, you got to freeze it. And then there's got to be some form of threat reduction. Those are sort of the practical steps. I agree with uh, everything Victor just said, but I would just note that 
all of it is easier to be said than done, right? This is just really, really hard. In fact, Senator Ed Markey asked Blinken during the hearing whether U.S. should support phase agreement with North Korea that gave North Korea tailored sanctions relief. And Blinken didn't rule it out. But he admitted himself that problem has gotten worse today. The range of policy options we have, I just think we, we have less leverage today than even just a few years ago. Because despite all the economic hardship that we just talked about, there's no question that North Koreans have made qualitative, quantitative, impressive progress developing their nuclear and missile arsenal since the Singapore summit, just in just a few years. And on the sanctions front, we have less leverage today just because implementation of sanctions is also less. Uh, China and Russia both have relaxed pressure. So it's just hard. Bill Burns, our note that he, he wrote a piece before where he held out JCPOA as a model for possible nuclear freeze deal with North Korea. And that's the only model we have. But I mean, Victor, you've noted on our capital cable session that even asking North Korea to join JCPOA, something like that, is not really realistic. We can't just imagine North Korea acceding to agreement that could produce something like JCPOA. Or, or they have even a team or, or experts, right? Victor, you said, you know, they don't even have the type of Western educated experts like Iran does. So it's just going to be a very challenging problems. I just wanted to underscore that. I mean, I know everybody who listens to our podcast knows that, but it's just not going to be easy. What leverage do we have with them at all? I mean, if they're cutting off trade with China, what do they respond to? Clearly, one point of leverage is the sanctions. You know, in the 2019 summit meeting in Hanoi between Trump and Kim, the North Korean leader you know, said very clearly what they want is sanctions relief, particularly the general trade sanctions in 2017. So this is putting aside the COVID issue, right? So I think there's certainly leverage in that respect. And one of the hard choices that the administration will face is whether they do some sort of tailored sanctions relief in return for some sort of freezing. But, you know, I feel sorry for the person who gets this portfolio (laughs) in, in this administration, because it's, as Sue said, The problem is worse than it was four years ago, and it's worse than it was eight years ago. So when the Biden team comes in and they open the North Korea folder, they're going to see that this is much worse than it was four years ago, where they they left it, because there's a lot of continuity. It's almost cliche now, but to say that we're not choosing between good and bad options when we come to North Korea, we're choosing between bad and worse options. So again, practically speaking, this problem has to be managed. I mean, one of the people I respect eminently in the field of Asia and U.S. policy, but just generally in terms of life lessons, is good friend Rich Armitage. Rich has a way in his own way of saying when things are uh, solvable and when they are a complete shit show. <laughs> yeah, he <Right>? sure does. <laughs> and we were on something earlier today, public, where he said, you know, effectively, this has now gotten to a point where it's a problem that has to be managed. There's no way to resolve this without huge cost. And so it's kind of past the point where it can be solved. And so I take my cue from him. He knows when something is, you know, there are other metaphors that I won't use in a podcast that he has used when it gets to a point where you got to manage the bleeding rather than trying to stop it. Well, we'll have to get Secretary Armitage to come on the impossible state so we can hear some of his wisdom directly from the horse's mouth at some point soon. Victor, Sue, thank you very much for this first Impossible State edition of the new Biden administration. Really, really informative. Thank you both. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Sue.
If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.